Thank you, Rajivji. So the first question we have for the day is from Ma Ananda Priya. She is asking, after getting the freedom, why are the Hindus following the Western culture? After getting the freedom, why are Hindus still following the Western culture? After getting independence, political freedom, not moksha freedom. Okay, okay. So, political independence did not decolonize the mind. It only got rid of political colonialism and then it's taken many decades to also get economic freedom. Only recently did India become independent of, uh, you know, Western aid and things like that. But still, we are in bondage to intellectual colonialism. A lot of my work has to do with that. The study of Sanskrit, Sanskriti, India, its heritage, Hinduism, all of that, academically is still controlled by the West and that hasn't changed and the practitioners and the teachers academics in India in this field generally follow the Western pattern of studying so we haven't gotten rid of that and in some ways it's gotten worse in some ways we are more in bondage because we think that we now are uh, sophisticated westernized so we like we don't need our own heritage and we need uh, Britney Spears to come back and tell us about yoga and then we think it must be good or some Westerner comes back and tell us something about our own heritage and we think it must be good that's a deep inferiority complex so uh, it's important to uh, it's important to modernize but it's also important to stay in touch with our own roots and we haven't done that in a balanced way. So I, I would say the answer to that question is the reason we are not, we can't say we are free. We are politically free. We are not intellectually and in terms of our identity, we are still not free of uh, the colonial baggage. And hopefully the new generation, because they are born in uh, plenty of uh, you know, success in material terms, can also have confidence, can, can do want to learn about their own heritage and history from our own point of view. And so these are the things that can lead to also decolonizing the mind. So that's where I think we should be going. Thank you, Rajivji. The next question we have, Nityanandam, why is Hinduism so abused? Why is it a target? We didn't do anything to them. Okay, you should not blame people, you should think of it as there are competing ideologies and competing paradigms. So when you play sports, you don't blame the opposing team for beating you because they are, a, they are out there to win. And they believe in themselves and they are out there to win. Our job is to be better than them rather than whine and complain that they are beating us. So people who come from a certain civilization have every right to defend it. They, they have some historical messages passed on to them. They're born into those traditions. And so they're carrying out whatever those are. It's not possible for us to 
change them. People have tried to change somebody else's thinking, but we cannot really do that. What we have to do is be assertive in ourselves, be confident, and be able to respond. So it's not that they are hating us, and why are they hating us, and can we change? We shouldn't feel like that. We should say, well, that is their nature. They're defending their tradition. According to their tradition, they should expand and take over the world. And we are, we are no good, we are infidels or something like that. So as far as the Abrahamic religions are concerned, they have to expand, that's what they are taught. And it's up to us to protect ourselves and defend ourselves. As far as the Marxist, secularist, those kind of people are concerned, that's actually in many ways a bigger threat. They're, they're cynical about all faiths. And in this country, we happen to be the main ones that they target. Uh, in the United States, they target the Christianity and so on. So we should strengthen ourselves and not be worrying about why others are the way they are because what we can change is ourselves. What we cannot change is how somebody else is thinking. And even to change someone else's thinking, it will only happen if we are able to think a certain way and project ourselves with confidence. We cannot, if we are weak, disorganized, confused, we cannot sort of blame others and try to change them. So I, I would turn the question and, uh, around and say, you know, rather than saying, why are others that way, I would say, why are we not able to stand up and defend ourselves? The moment we are able to defend ourselves, the others will also run away. The next question we have. So what, what is the immediate step to do to raise the self-respect of Hindus? You see, there are several things to do. One of them is that a large amount of Hindu contribution to the world historically has not been recognized. People are now recognizing things like yoga and is giving pride to people. People need to understand that the cutting edge of mental health treatment in the United States is meditation-based, cognitive therapy, it's Hindu, Buddhist type of techniques that are being practiced at the mindfulness, meditation, all these kind of things. So why are, why are others able to take advantage of our tradition so successfully and we haven't incorporated the same thing in our own lives? Vegetarianism is growing in the West. Meat eating is growing in India. That's the tragedy. In the United States where I live, smoking is coming down. It's no longer cool to smoke and the number of people who are smokers going down. And India is more fashionable to smoke because it shows you're modern and westernized and all that stuff. So we are picking up their bad habits. They're picking up our good habits. So I think the solution is to get in touch with our own heritage's positive qualities. And, all, and that, this requires correcting our history because the history books in our schools do not teach a positive history of ourselves. A lot of contributions of science, technology, mathematics, astronomy, all kinds of things, medicine came from India. But you don't find that taught in our textbooks. So we continue a colonial education approach where we are poor, have been dependent, are at the mercy of others, 
we should always import their ideas and their knowledge. And this, of course, creates an inferiority complex in our people, and we're not able to truly feel proud and assert ourselves. So the solution is correcting our history textbooks, appreciating our own heritage, of course, critically, in a balanced way, not chauvinistically, and also appreciating other people where other people are good. So we respect others, but we also must respect ourselves. The next question is from I want to know about how they destroyed the Vedic tradition of Hinduism, the Gurukul system. How to? How was the Gurukul system destroyed, the Gurukul system of education? You know, until the 1700s and parts of 1800s, that system was alive. Then there was a decision by the British people at the time, the East India Company used to rule, the decision was to anglicize the education. There was one Macaulay, famous man, who introduced this idea of anglicizing, getting rid of Sanskrit, getting rid of the Gurukul system, the Patshalas, and educating Indians to become clerks to serve the empire. They needed a lot of low-level people doing basic work. And so Indians got turned into that. And the Gurukul system where people were taught our own knowledge system was gone. So creative thinking went, leadership, all these kind of things went, went out the window. And we brought in a whole system of English-based, very low-level education, memorizing uh, exams to prove yourself and get a job. These are all very alien concepts to the Indian system. And this transformation happened starting in the early 1800s. Now, most people don't know this, that before Lord Macaulay proposed this, it was an Indian named Ram Mohan Roy from Bengal who had become like a real uh, champion of colonialism, an Indian who had become a champion of colonialism, a champion of Christianity, uh, thought that Christianity should reform Hinduism, He's the one who started writing letters that the British should introduce their education system as a benefit for Indians because we just didn't have a good education system. He wrote that and then Lord Macaulay turned that, took that forward and you know a few years later the whole Indian Gurukul system collapsed. So that's, that's a sad, sad state of affairs. Now I, I'm aware that many Gurus are reviving the Gurukul system including here. And that's a very good thing to do because uh, some of the traditional methods of learning are known to in, in improve memory, improve creativity. Uh, you know, some of those things are now being introduced even into the American school system. Yoga, meditation, these sort of things as part of the school curriculum are coming up there. So I think the trend is at least in certain circles to uh, reintroduce the uh, Gurukul system. The next question we have. Though in Hinduism we have all the extraordinary powers and knowledge of great weapons like Brahmastra, why did we set back? What was the exact reason behind the fallback? 
which era of human history hinduism started declining so there is a system of being being vigilant about others that our tradi our tradition had and we lost that system and that's when the decline started there is a system called purva paksha and i write quite a lot about it purva paksha means you study the other whoever is the other you study them you're always learning about what they who they are what they're thinking of and you're giving them a response you're giving them a response of your from your point of view so the vedic people were doing purva paksha with the buddhists buddhists were doing with the vedic people and the advait people were doing with purvami mamsa and so on there were different ideologies different schools of thought and they were always practicing this with each other and therefore they were on their toes they were always improving but somewhere along the way we stopped doing purva paksha especially when there was a foreign intrusion so when christians came and settled in the malabar coast and kerala early syrian christians soon after christ we didn't do a purva paksha of them we just didn't bother when early muslims came we didn't do a purva paksha of them when more recently marxists came we didn't do a purva paksha when the british east india company came no hindu scholars said let's do a purva paksha of who these people are what is the difference between the british east india company and the french and the dutch and the danish the portuguese all these different types of people were coming who are they what's their ideology how do they operate how can we play one against the other the way they're playing us one against the other we just didn't understand them the way they understood us they invested a lot to do purva paksha on us they sent anthropologists and missionaries to study us and a lot of people write wrote, wrote travel logs when they went back so they were going on accumulating more knowledge about us and knowledge is power when you understand the other side you gain power we were complacent we were lazy so i would say that the intellectual leaders of our society were either too proud too arrogant too afraid maybe lazy but did not study the other all these centuries and prepare us how to deal with them so it was easy for them to come and take us apart and you know kill us in this way or take over our culture or do something or other and it was very we weren't ready to give back we weren't ready to uh respond in a certain manner i think it's that the, the lack of understanding of who these others are that are coming here which gave them the ability to uh, defeat us do you know in army old days the elephant was a very powerful weapon because elephant is high so either the enemy was on foot or at best on horses so they were lower and so somebody sitting on an army with a spear or with bows and arrows could shoot down very easily and those people were not able to shoot up and get to the person on an elephant and india had thousands of elephants in these armies and ordinary king could have several hundred or several thousand elephants and those guys coming from far away those countries were deserted areas they didn't have elephants they they just didn't and they hadn't trained the elephant armies the way indians did so this was a major protection of india but then it's the jenghis khan people and 
before that little bit who mastered horse riding standing on the horse so instead of sitting on the horse they could stand on the horse and the horse is running real fast now you are at the height of an elephant if you stand on the horse you are at the height of an elephant so from that military style the turks learned this because they were the jenghis khan people had taken over a lot of uh, you know they conquered those areas central asia turkey those kind of places iran so when people when those people started invading india they would defeat the elephant army and indians should have learned and then improvised but we 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 didn't change our military methods we just didn't study them and say okay now they got a new weapon we have to create a new weapon this business of not studying the other is a very uh, with your, keeping your eyes closed living in a silo putting your head in sand being isolated being introverted you know i leave them alone they leave me alone it doesn't work you have to engage you have to wake up you have to face the reality and i think we lost because our leaders were not courageous enough and brave and bright enough to face the reality with eyes open and we didn't learn who these guys are and how to defeat them the next question we have is from shri yanatma maharaj he is asking what what is it you see that paramhamsa nityananda swami ji and the nityananda sangha contributes most that is most needed by hinduism worldwide and what it is that nityananda sangha and hindus should continue to contribute or need to improve in order to serve hinduism as a global and a future leader well i think swamiji is doing so many things it's difficult to for me to say which one is the most important uh, but i will say that uh, combining the spiritual transcendence with the practicalities of life the parmarthika and the vivarika combining those is a very wonderful thing that swami ji is doing and inculcating this in the lives of all his devotees so that they then become ambassadors and through their lives others learn i think it's a remarkable this morning or this afternoon i was given a demo of the third eye young kids two of them were able to perform uh, something i never seen before i saw it once in the kumbh mela also by uh, swami ji's uh, you know students and this is quite amazing it's quite an impressive feat showing that this very ancient technique works it's contrary to what medical what modern science says is possible so if you look at it this way swami ji is reviving old knowledge bringing it back today giving it value today in today's context and this is the sort of thing that uh, is unique that uh, the the sangha can take over to take to the world and people will appreciate it the next question is from vireshwara maharaj he is asking what do you feel as a thing need to be done to revive hinduism in this modern era 
Well, I think the Hindus themselves have to become better Hindus. And, and it's not about propagating it to others, but basically reminding ourselves, I think all of us need to do a better job. So, in, including Hinduism in your life, being able to talk about it without being embarrassed, this would be a very amazing thing to happen because Hindus are generally avoiding the subject. Most others are quite relaxed about their identity and talk about it. But somehow our people find it a bit awkward to talk about it. Maybe they don't know enough or they, are, they have a complex. So this is the first thing to do is to be able to talk about it, to discuss it, to answer questions, to give responses. And that forces you to research and think. Because if you are go not going to make a fool of yourself, then to give a proper answer, you have to, uh, you have to be able to uh, be sufficiently educated, have enough experience in these discussions and debates. And the more you practice talking about it to other people, the stronger it becomes in yourself. So that's what Hindus, I think, need to do, is in order to assert their identity, and then others will also appreciate it. And then others will learn about it and, and figure out what are some of its values that, that can benefit the world. Because when you look at issues, some of the big issues, you look at environmentalism. We, are, we have a unique contribution in the sense that we are encouraged to not depend on too much sensory consumerism, material consumerism, in order to have a joyful life. Because if you don't have that, you're just constantly wanting more material stuff. Obviously, you cannot have a, you, it'll have, the consumerism will keep going out of, out of control and you cannot uh, have a environmental, uh, an environmentally friendly lifestyle. You look at the problem of aging and while Western medicine can keep people living longer, it's not necessarily happier. They're mentally not in good shape their families are not together. So old family values, spiritual te techniques for mental health, these are very important for uh, an aging population. So you look at some of the methods being adopted worldwide, they're all from our culture. Vegetarianism is from our culture. So we have a lot to offer and we need to sort of reconnect with our own, uh, our own treasure. The next question we have, can you please tell us briefly about what you understand by Hinduism and what is unique about Hinduism in comparison with other religions that exist today? Well, that's a huge question. I have a book called Being Different. Being Different. Uh, it's available quite widely. That whole book, 500 pages, is a description of Hinduism, dharma in general, and how it contrasts with the Abrahamic religions, how dharma contrasts with the Abrahamic religions. Each chapter gives you a different aspect of this. So, for instance, our philosophy and cosmology of a transcendent world and a world of practicality and matter being really one and the same, different aspects of the same, is quite different. This is quite different from the Abrahamic religions where there is a duality between God and world. This is a huge difference. 
and this defines us because once you accept the premise of an integral unity, then it, all the different rituals and all the different sadhanas and practices people do make sense. They fall into that. I also talk about the importance of self-realization. The individual being is divine, not original sinner, but originally divine. So, uh, contrasted with the Abrahamic religions, where a person is not inherently divine. That is uh, because they're born sinners in some traditions, in other traditions, they've disobeyed and they're being punished and whatnot. So, uh, for one reason or another, in the Abrahamic religions, it is not acceptable to start saying that everybody, so a Christian wouldn't say that everybody is Christ, uh, you know, that everybody can have that experience, because that way you dilute the historicity of Christ, of Jesus, and then it would crumble the church, or it would devastate a large part of organized, institutionalized Christianity. In our case, living gurus, living enlightened masters keep coming. There's, it's not that uh, uh, some old era history closed the, ca closed the canon. New enlightenments, new rishis, new gurus come who are, are self-actualized. And therefore, the, every human, every person has that potential. So this is a very distinct quality we have as compared to the Abrahamic religions. So I could go on and give you quite a, quite a few, uh, but I think these are the principal ones. The way we see the, the individual being as Satchitanand and not an original sinner is a very important concept. The way we see that, the, that history is not closed, new, in every community, enlightenment continues to happen. That's a very uh, interesting uh, and unusual thing. The way we see the unity of the cosmos and the, what is beyond the cosmos as being really the two parts of the same thing is quite interesting. And these are very distinct from uh, the other religions.